Today, we are tackling a hot topic and somewhat controversial diagnosis, post-concussion syndrome. On one hand, post-concussion syndrome is a well-described pattern of symptoms, but on the other hand, we don't know what causes it. Plus, because the symptoms are subjective, post-concussion syndrome has been very difficult to quantify and study. Whether you work with kids or adults in your occupational therapy practice, at some point you'll probably work with patients who have suffered a concussion. This research that we're looking at today will help you feel informed and confident when working with these patients. And personally, I also felt like the research confirmed why OT is such a good fit for post-concussion care. And so I'm so excited to dive into this topic with you today. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we dive deep into research and pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's topic, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. Now, obviously, you are listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our evidence-based practice platform. I'll give you more details on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate at the end of this episode. So bearing in mind that this could qualify as a CEU course, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives for today. So you can be thinking about them as you're listening to this podcast. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to define post-concussion syndrome. The second learning objective is that you will be able to identify important occupational therapy considerations for working with patients with post-concussion syndrome. To meet these two objectives, I'm first going to walk you through an influential and relatively new journal article about post-concussion syndrome, and then I'm going to bring on an OT with expertise in treating concussions to help us unpack and apply what we learn from the research. So let's get started by breaking down the research. The research article that we are looking at today is called The Longitudinal Study of Post-Concussion Syndrome, colon, Not Everyone Recovers. This article comes to us from the Journal of Neurotrauma. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 49th on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles from the past five years. So the journal article kicks off with just a general introduction to what post-concussion syndrome is. Now, post-concussion syndrome is a common result of a traumatic brain injury, or a TBI, And post-concussion syndrome, or PCS, reportedly impacts about 5% to 43% of all individuals who have suffered a concussion. While there are different definitions out there, this particular study characterized post-concussion syndrome as the persistence of any symptom beyond three months after the concussion. Some of the most common symptoms that these patients experience include headache, difficulty concentrating, depression, and fatigue. Now, just from hearing this initial list of some of the most common symptoms, you should already be getting a sense of why this syndrome is so hard to quantify, as the symptoms are also very common in the general population. Unfortunately, there is no diagnostic biomarker of PCS, and there is also no evidence-based cure. 
Next, I wanted to touch briefly on what causes PCS. And the short answer is that the exact cause of PCS is unknown. The theories range from biomechanical to psychogenetic roots, but we just really don't know what causes this syndrome, which makes it difficult to set the diagnostic criteria like we mentioned above. Um, I looked at some even more recent research from this article and particularly at an up-to-date article on this. And up-to-date said that test results for the syndrome may or may not be abnormal. And even when they are abnormal, they really don't seem to follow a set pattern. So it's really no surprise, as the article cites, that PCS sufferers often feel frustrated and helpless due to the difficulty in diagnosis in absence of proven treatment. So what did the authors of this article hope to contribute to our understanding of PCS? Given the current ambiguity about what exactly constitutes PCS, the author's intent was to better characterize persisting post-concussion syndrome. Specifically, they wanted to determine the differences from those who eventually recovered from PCS and those who did not. In order to look at this research question, the researchers identified 285 patients with the diagnosis of PCS, all of whom were seen by a single neurosurgeon with a special interest in PCS. They were mailed a questionnaire on the topic of recovery. And there was some set criteria for patients who were excluded from the study that I thought I should mention. Um, the first was patients who had evidence of change on a CT or MRI, um, such as a hemorrhage or a contusion. Also, patients who were involved in litigation were excluded from this research. And also patients who showed a likelihood of malingering as evidenced by failing the test of memory malingering. And as a reminder, malingering is an intentional exaggeration of symptoms. So basically, they tried to exclude patients that might distort the outcomes of this research. Next, I wanted to highlight what symptoms they examined in PCS or what symptoms were included on this questionnaire. I'm going to just go ahead and read the entire list of symptoms so you can get a full sense of the possible symptoms of post-concussion syndrome. I'm also going to read these in the order of the respondents most frequently to least frequently reported symptoms. So the list of symptoms that they were looking at were headache, difficulty concentrating, fatigued, feeling in a fog, pressure in the head, sensitivity to light, difficult remembering recent or remote events, neck pain, sensitivity to noise, depression or sadness, insomnia, irritability, anxiety, frustration, feeling slowed down, noise in the ears, Vision changes, lightheadedness, imbalance, feeling more emotional, dizziness, nausea, increased sensitivity to alcohol, confusion, personality changes, vivid dreams, numbness, vertigo, panic attacks, disorientation, stomach ache, loss of appetite, slurred speech, seizures, and vomiting. So what were the results of this questionnaire that the researchers sent out? 110 participants returned the questionnaire and were not excluded by the criteria that I just mentioned previously. 
the average time since the patient had last been to a clinical visit for PCS was 4.4 years. And over 27% of the respondents reported a full recovery from PCS. And of those that did recover, 67% did so in the first year. So unfortunately, that means that about two-thirds of the respondents had not fully recovered from PCS. And the other thing to note was that no respondents identified a recovery once the symptoms had lasted beyond three years. There was a lot more sophisticated analysis um, in the results of this article, so I definitely encourage you to check out those results if this is a topic that you want to dive deeper into. Now, on this questionnaire, not only did they ask about symptoms, they also asked about which treatments were the most effective. And as they analyzed the results, unfortunately, they found that no treatment showed a definitive significance in influence recovery. However, on the other hand, all of the major treatment options were found to be helpful by some of the respondents. The treatments that they explicitly asked about in the questionnaire included occupational therapy, physiotherapy, chiropractic manipulation, psychotherapy, medication, and vestibular repositioning. Now, there was a trend that neared significance showing that those who did recover from PCS found vestibular repositioning to be effective. For those who did not recover, there was a trend that neared significance towards finding medication to be effective. The questionnaire also gave participants the option to write in treatments and indicate whether or not they found them to be effective. Um, And I'm just going to list out the ones that they listed just so you can get a sense of the different treatments that uh, these patients tend to try. Um, So the ones that they wrote in included electrotherapy, exercise, homeopathy, manual lymphatic drainage, Reiki, repetitive magnetic stimulation, vitamins, yoga, meditation, massage, cranial sacral therapy, osteopathy, acupuncture, chiropractic neurology, myofascial release, neuropathy, and neuropostural vision therapy. So from these results, what did the researchers conclude and discuss? The overarching conclusion is that we still have an incomplete understanding of the cause and course of PCS. But the authors did share some interesting findings. The first was that there seemed to be a pattern of how the symptoms appeared. There was a tendency for patients with the same number of symptoms to have the same set of symptoms. And they actually have a heat map of how the symptoms appeared in the article that just gives a really good illustration of this. Their second main takeaway was that there was a strong association between the total number of symptoms and the length of time to recovery. Basically, the more symptoms the patients reported, the longer the path to recovery. And again, the authors pointed out that after three years with PCS, no patient reported a full recovery. So what were my takeaways from this research for OT professionals? As always, these are just my personal takeaways, and they were not reflected directly in this research. I had three takeaways. The first is that 
there seems to be this window of opportunity in the first year post-concussion that really fits with what we know about neuroplasticity. From our work as OT professionals with stroke and chronic pain, we know that after there is an injury, the brain goes to work trying to reorganize itself. And during this initial period, which seems to take three months up to a year, there just seems to be this opportunity for our therapy to positively influence that reorganization. The timeline presented for concussion recovery seems to match this trajectory. So like many of the conditions we work with, the sooner we can see these patients, the better. My second takeaway was that the assertion that PCS might be permanent after three years just does not match our understanding of neuroplasticity. Science supporting the neuroplasticity of the brain, meaning its ability to change, is probably the biggest therapy-related advancement of our generation. So I was just really surprised to see that the author stated that PCS may be permanent after three years. This seemed to be out of step with our current understanding of chronic conditions and just unnecessarily fatalistic. I personally would want to see a lot more data and research before believing that these patients in the chronic phase of PCS are permanently stuck. We know that even in chronic conditions, the brain is still working to reorganize itself, and we would hope that our therapy could influence that, even if it doesn't mean a full recovery, but could possibly mean a higher quality of life for these patients. And then my third takeaway was that education, self-efficacy, symptom management, and occupation seem like they should be the pillars of our therapy for these patients. Even though in the research there wasn't one particular treatment that stood out as a silver bullet, we can surmise from our reading that as occupational therapy practitioners, our care for those with PCS should probably involve the following four things. First, normalizing the client's situation by educating them about PCS. Second, seeking to understand their degree of self-efficacy in various situations and seeking to boost it when appropriate. Third, using our skill set to focus on managing their symptoms. And fourth, leveraging our uniquely holistic lens to help patients participate in meaningful activities as fully as possible. Okay, that is my breakdown of this research article, and there is just so much to unpack about this topic. So I'm really excited right now to bring on my friend, Devin Cochran, who is an OT based out of Canada, who has a lot of expertise in treating concussion. And we are going to spend the rest of our time together just kind of picking his brain on how this research can apply to your daily practice as an occupational therapy professional. So without further ado, I am going to patch Devin into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Devin. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited both to tackle this topic of post-concussion syndrome with you, um, and also I'm just excited to be talking to an OT across the border up in Canada. Um, I was wondering if you could give people a little background on your work and your interest in concussion before we dive into the topic. Sure thing. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you always. And um, yeah, a little bit about me. I've been an OT now for six years, and I spent the first couple of years of my career doing general community-based practice, 
in a private setting up here in Victoria, British Columbia. And four years ago, I came to a new clinic called Tall Tree with the hopes and the intentions of starting a concussion program um, with some colleagues here. And so for the last four years, I've been working almost exclusively helping people after concussion um, as an OT clinically and also managing this program and, um, and developing it from the ground up. And it's been a really, really fun process and enjoyable you know, every day. And I've learned a ton, which I'm really excited to speak with you about today. And I really feel passionately like, that OTs have a, a big role in helping people after concussion and brain injury more generally. And I'm hopeful that uh, talking about it today will inspire some other people to get their hands dirty and really uh, feel comfortable jumping in and helping people after a concussion. Yeah, that's awesome. I I just knew when I read this article that you were the person that I wanted to talk to because I knew that not only do you have like a research and academic interest in concussion, but that you are actually working with patients um, who are presenting with these post-concussion syndrome. And that's just so powerful to be reading about it, but also seeing the patients. So thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with kind of couching our conversation in just like a broader understanding of concussion and post-concussion syndrome. Um, the article really just touched on this a little bit. Um, it alluded to how post-concussion syndrome is kind of a problematic, not really standardized diagnosis. Um, but to me, that just like really scratched the surface of how little we know about both post-concussion syndrome and both and concussion just overall. Um, so I was wondering if you could start off by just helping us understand why concussion and post-concussion syndrome are just kind of tricky topics and tricky diagnoses. For sure. Well, I think I can speak to my journey a little bit uh, in, in working through these questions because when I first started, as an OT and in this space um, of supporting people after concussion, I thought we had it all figured out. I thought that we knew what brain injury was really clearly and that we knew what concussions were and they were well-defined. And there was this thing called, you know, post-concussion syndrome that was really uh, a good, clear diagnosis and really helped us understand what's going on. But pretty quickly realized that that's not the case and that there's a lot of questions about what these things are. But, you know, starting with the idea of what a concussion is, there is a bit of clarity around that um, in terms of, you know, the standard definitions. But there are a lot of different definitions of concussion. I think upwards of 40 or more. Um, but I think they all kind of circle around the same thing, which is that we look at concussion as a brain injury. And whether or not you plot it on the standard TBI scale, um, I like to see it generally as a moderate brain injury or just a different word for a mild traumatic brain injury. Sorry, I can correct myself there. Um, we see it as a mild traumatic brain injury. That's how we look at it generally. And with that, we do assume that there's been some kind of injury to the brain. And usually that's thought of as um, a result of some kind of force to the brain through either uh, a direct blow to the head or some kind of force is transmitted through the body. 
that's generally what all the definitions have in common. But I think where things get really complicated is that we can't always tell really clearly that the brain's been injured, at least not with sort of the standard diagnostic instruments and things that most um, you know, medical systems have access to. And so there's lots of um, difficulty in really diagnosing a concussion um, because it's pretty hard to identify when there's been that mild injury to the brain. Of course, there are, you know, different methods of doing that these days in terms of certain types of MRI scans and that sort of thing. But th these kind of things aren't really available to the average person going through an injury. So there's a lot of mystery and uncertainty surrounding when someone shows up after an injury, whether or not the brain's actually been injured. Yeah, I think in general, I think of concussion as there being a negative brain scan, like they didn't see anything on whatever imaging that they did. And so they give it this more general diagnosis. Do you think that's the general trend of how people refer to concussion? Yeah, it has been looked at as that sort of diagnosis of exclusion, right? Oh, your MRI or your CT scan looks clear. So you're probably dealing with concussion. Well, that's kind of a sketchy diagnosis yeah. because, you know, there, you know, where we are assuming there has been some kind of injury. We just don't have maybe the resolution to detect that with some of the methods that we use. So I think it's probably, you know, a better option to actually be looking for signs of, of injury, which is where a lot of the science is going, right? Um, and because it's, it's a little bit outside of the OT scope to really be like digging into diagnosis, but, um, there are lots of different um, efforts to, to yeah, better improve scans so we can see really um, subtle injury or use biomarkers or uh, ECG and that kind of thing to, to see if there has been an injury. And I think those are really good efforts because part of the challenge in rehab is, is to know whether or not a brain injury has happened, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go through this today. But you know, for SOTs, part of the challenge when we see people are coming to see us maybe for concussion or suspected concussion is that we don't know if that brain um, if the brain has been injured in a lot of cases and that can confuse things a little bit which again we'll get into my thinking around how we uh, look at concussion as a label was really informed by this great paper um, from a neurologist in the UK, I believe he is, David Sharp, who wrote this paper called Concussion is Confusing Us All, I think in 2015. And he does a great job of explaining the history of the word and the interpretation of the word and, and presents a kind of a better way of, of identifying uh, a concussion through diff different labels, like using the words probable or symptomatic as, as modifiers of, of concussion. Yeah, as I was preparing also for this conversation today, confusion was definitely one of the main things I was feeling about why we even use the term concussion versus a mild TBI, except that maybe concussion is a little softer way to say that. Like That's right. after a football game, you don't want to say that someone had a mild TBI. Uh, we're used to saying that they had a concussion. Do you make any differentiation between a mild TBI and a concussion? No, in my work, no. I, I kind of um, interpret them being the same. But you're so right. I think many people look at that word concussion as sort of a soft label. 
um, because it doesn't carry some of the connotations that a word like traumatic or a term like traumatic brain injury does carry, even though that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a, an injury to the brain caused by traumatic forces. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting differentiation that is made. And lots of different people think about it differently. Some, some people do look at concussion as being this sort of mild, mild traumatic brain injury or outside of that spectrum. So again, that's sort of part of the reason why it's hard sometimes to talk about these labels is that they are interpreted differently. But I guess for the sake of today's discussion is the way I'm coming at it is I, I think about concussion as a mild traumatic brain injury. So if we're starting from such kind of a murky place with the larger umbrella of concussion, it makes a lot of sense that post-concussion syndrome then is also kind of a murky diagnosis. How would you define this diagnosis, I guess, in a helpful way for therapists who are working on the ground? Sure. And you're so right. I think a big reason why a label like post-concussion or post-concussive syndrome is challenging is because we don't actually always have a clear definition of what concussion is to begin with. So I think the way that it's traditionally been seen is that there has been a suspected injury. So we think a concussion has happened and there are some symptoms that persist following that, usually for a period of months or more. But again, we're running into the same problems with this label too, in terms of that it's interpreted and defined many different ways. So the, the ICD, for example, ICD-10 defines it as having some kind of head trauma, having symptoms, and those lasting for three or more months. Interestingly, like the DSM-5 doesn't actually have a, a label of PCS, they have a different label called neurocognitive disorder, which is slightly different. Um, but basically what we assume when we, we use a label like PCS is that there's an injury and some symptoms that persist, but it's kind of a, yeah, kind of a sketchy label too, because we don't always know where those symptoms are coming from most of the time symptoms of um, concussion or brain injury are general or vague and they don't always have a clear seat in the brain they may not be related to brain injury so it's it's a tricky it's a tricky one yeah i'm kind of laughing at myself because one of the learning objectives i set for this conversation was that uh, people would be able to define post-concussion syndrome and i'm like oh that's a much harder learning objective than i thought originally um, as I was looking at definitions, it does kind of seem like that three month symptoms going beyond three months was pretty common. That was a common time point, but then there was variation in how many symptoms were still persisting. Like right. I think in one definition, it had to be up to three symptoms. And in one definition, it had to just be one symptom. Um, and that's a big difference when you're talking about these commonly occurring symptoms like headache. Um, so I definitely see the problem. I see the problems that researchers are having even as a starting point to study this. Totally. And I think, you know, you can see that choosing just numbers, you know, they're are pretty arbitrary, like three months yeah. or three <laughs> symptoms. You know, these are just people deciding that there's a certain number that we should use as a criteria to define a condition, um, which clearly is problematic. You know, and there's been... There's been lots of push in the last uh, few years, probably last decade, to move beyond the term post-concussion syndrome. And so 
yeah, although it's a learning objective today to define it, I think probably what's best is to look back in terms of how it has been defined and um, be clear in terms of how we can move forward with some better systems. And there's a great uh, a lecture just recently at the 360 NeuroHealth Concussion Summit. A group of PhDs did a presentation about persisting symptoms, and they did a great, really nice job presenting um, some ideas about how we might move move beyond that label of PCS and talk about these persisting issues um, just as persisting issues or as current issues that people are dealing with. Yeah, and just because we don't have these good definitions doesn't mean that there's not this seemingly sizable number of people that have persisting issues after a concussion. I kind of want to pivot to talking a little bit about why these persisting issues happen as far as what's our current understanding of that. I know we don't have a full understanding of why symptoms persist for some people and not others, but could you speak to us about that a little bit? Sure. Well, that's a good, tough question yeah. because <laughs> it really is such a an amorphous you know, blob that we're trying to make sense of and attach these labels to. But I think we can, we can borrow a lot from the literature and, the, and research um, in persisting pain or really chronic disease in general and chronic conditions because we've been thinking more and more about these, this idea of persisting symptoms or if we want to call it a syndrome as being um, analogous to what people face after a, um, a physical injury of other kinds and, and end up having pain that's long lasting. So really we're thinking about it on different levels in terms of there's probably some physiological changes that, that happen for people um, that lead to symptoms establishing themselves and remaining. And those might be related to an actual injury that's happened to the brain, could be related to other issues in the body that result from an event. For example, like um, a neck injury or a vestibular injury. And if we again borrow some ideas from, from the pain world, there does seem to be some aspects of sensitization that happen in the brain, some neurological changes that happen when you're in sort of a symptomatic state for a long enough. There's also probably some inflammatory things that happen. There's you know, neuroplastic changes in the brain that sort of get stuck when symptoms you know, last for months or more. But there's also the whole behavioral, psychological, cognitive side of things too that is similar to other conditions. So you, you, know, you of course have people who start doing less and less um, sort of have this aspect of, if, if you can say it's a learned disability state, there's lots of activity avoidance. And those things can really get sort of stuck or can, or can lead to people getting stuck in that state. And then there's lots of cognitive changes too, in terms of the way we think about our symptoms and our lives after an injury. There's lots of fear and avoidance when you're feeling unwell and things are threatening and causing symptoms. There's beliefs about whether or not we can get better or not. There's worries that we have about whether we can get better or not. There's lots of attention on symptoms because they are so intense and unpleasant. 
And then, of course, there's the whole medical system around everyone going through these things too, that can also lead to a lot of, you know, nocebo effects and really enhance those beliefs about disability. So all, all that to, you know, saying that it's pretty messy and we don't know necessarily a lot in terms of why people end up having issues that are longstanding. And I think that in most people, the reasons are different and there isn't this one reason. There isn't just a syndrome that we can put our finger on and, and understand. Yeah, and as you started at the beginning, that comparison to chronic pain, and also I was thinking about stroke too, or other acquired brain injuries, where there is this we think of as an acute phase at the beginning, which is usually we think of that as like the first three months. And then you get into this chronic phase. Um, and I think especially with chronic pain, you think of there's that initial injury and then the body's responding and then for some reason, that pain for some people just extends longer. Like, And we don't know if that's because it's just gotten used to firing all the time and it just gets kind of stuck. And um, it just seems like overall, that's kind of a big mystery that we're looking at in multiple chronic conditions right now. Like, why do these symptoms last longer for some people than others? Um, and we just, we don't know. No, but I think there's there are definitely some some trends um, like those that I mentioned that I think probably underlie some mechanisms that are maybe not universal but maybe are shared across a lot of these conditions. Um, and I do think you know we we've been thinking more and more, at least as a clinical team here, about the similarities between um, ongoing pain or ongoing symptoms following concussion, which, which often are pain symptoms too, or fatigue and these kind of things that are very, very similar in, in both those um, situations. So yeah, I think we're, we're probably moving more and more towards, you know, converging on a set of principles that underlie a lot of these persistent symptom states. And I think there is probably quite a bit of knowledge there that we just have to piece together. It's not that it's totally, uh, uncertain or unclear. I think there's just a matter of putting all the pieces together from different places and looking outside of the literature around concussion to start with and looking at things like you said, neurological recovery, pain, you know, central um, sensitivity syndromes, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's what I love about OT is even though we may not understand the exact mechanisms of what's going on. We can still provide hope to our patients and uh, provide strategies that do have evidence behind them. I kind of want to pivot from the theoretical um, to the clinic to you're seeing these patients. And I want to start with kind of where overall OT is right now in treating concussion. And where do you think a lot of us are currently missing stuff or where what's some areas for growth that you see in OT um, or even thinking about yourself when you started out in concussion? What, what do you feel like you were kind of missing the boat on? Great question. Well, I think there's this sense that concussion is this really special thing that you need to really, you know, treat differently or look at differently which in some ways is true. There is some nuance like there is for any medical condition. But I think overall, we already have the skills to, to really help people 
deal with what's going on in their lives when they're recovering from a concussion or they're having symptoms longstanding. And I mean, like you said, we have a privilege as well in terms of not necessarily having to be focused or obsessed with coming up with a diagnosis. We can just be pragmatic and help somebody who's right in front of us who's needing help. And so I think that's one thing that's maybe overlooked is that there's this sort of aura surrounding concussion that is really special and that, oh, I don't treat that or I don't know enough to treat it. But I really would encourage people to be courageous and, and to, you know, be confident that they have a lot of skills that can help. So I think when I came into the the field, if you want to call it a field, um, I, I thought about things like, oh, needing to get really skilled at cognitive rehab or learn a lot more about vision therapy or get my CBT skills, you know, on lockdown or really just kind of get these components really strong, which is great. And I think those things do help, but those components only go so far. I think when we focus too much on the symptoms or on the components that people are dealing with, we kind of miss or lose sight of the person who's struggling and them being a human and also kind of forgetting about the value that occupation brings into people's lives. So I really see that uh, treatment in general, not just for OTs, but just in general around concussion is very symptom focused. Um, it's very impairment focused. And I would like much rather see it become more occupation focused, more engagement focused, which is where we come in. So building on that, I think if we were to kind of create a simple model it would be to really just apply a regular OT lens to helping people here. So thinking about what are the functional issues that people are having and what can we do about them? Yeah, and that, that occupation-based approach really does fit with our current understanding of neuroplasticity of the brain. Like if there has been some like learned disuse, really getting back to doing things um, as fully as possible is one of the best things you can do to help your brain uh, heal and reprogram itself, even in the chronic phase, like we can still um, impact how our brain is changing, even when we're in the chronic phase of something. Definitely we can. And that's what's really exciting um, for us in rehab is that idea that it doesn't matter how long things have been going on for, there's always room for functional gains into doing more in your life, even if symptoms persist. And that's a little kind of spin that I think is important for SOTs is that in a lot of these studies, like the paper that we're talking about, they're looking at the resolution of symptoms, not so much on the functional gains that are maybe possible. Because I, I really believe, and I know you do, that those gains in terms of what you're doing in your life are always possible. And there's always hope that that's, that's there that we can help and work on. And a lot of times I think it's kind of overlooked, you know, people are chasing a fix for symptoms, which is okay. And I think that's fair and we want to be helpful in helping people to feel less symptoms. But I think above all, we really want to be focusing on helping them do more with their lives. And we have a lot to, of different strategies to offer them there. Would you say 
just like what a couple of those strategies are that you would highlight for this population. Um, I'm thinking about like maybe taking a graded approach to re-engaging in whatever's uh, important to the patient. I know I've been in a situation in my life where I was like, I can't exercise because of my symptoms. And I really just needed to take a graded approach to exercise. And, and that's something that I could see OTs being really helpful with. Most definitely. I mean, graded activity as a paradigm is is probably the most valuable thing that we can coach people through. So if you you know if you think about the the, the common issues people have, especially longstanding following an injury, things like pain and fatigue are are you know one or two categories, and you know pacing. Um, using graded approaches to do a little bit more every day, we know are really the best ways to address those um, kind of neurological symptoms. So a lot of times it comes down to just picking some things that people can begin with, changing expectations to a point where they feel comfortable beginning to do something, and really just starting to have goals again. Because I find that a lot of people who are struggling for months or years after injury it's, it's really hard to set goals and it's, it's, uh, it's a challenging place to, to keep building and pushing from. And that's where a lot of OT support and coaching can come in to help people really see that goals are possible and to set some little, little goals that are doable and progress them every week. Some other areas where I think, you know, OT interventions are really helpful, um, are in the cognitive rehab realm. So, in, in our practice here, we tend to be quite a bit more occupation-based or occupation-focused than using any kind of sort of component exercises and that sort of thing. And when people are having cognitive issues, whether it's within the first few months or, or beyond, I think it's really important to create opportunities to challenge those skills in a meaningful way but in a way that's really relevant for a person. So we spend a lot of time developing projects with people and helping them through those projects. For example, I've, I have a, a client who's retired, but is an, is an artist. And we had her actually bring in a few different art lessons and, and walk uh, myself and one of our OT students through um, some art lessons. And she had to go away and create an art lesson. Uh, we did silk screening. And she had to prepare a lesson plan, bring some props, walk us through it all. And I think there's there's such a richness there to um, explore things like, you know, sustaining your attention and being creative, staying on the task, you know, effectively planning through a process. But it all really taps into something that's meaningful to somebody and and relevant for them. So I think we we have a lot of really strong tools there as, as OTs to help to define those kinds of occupations and projects and activities that bring somebody a sense of purpose and then break it down into little bits so they can actually start doing it and really emphasize that that's therapeutic. I'm sure many of us have conversations with clients around the value of occupation. Well, I hope we do. And it's always really fun to see their kind of conception of what therapy looks like shift to one that's about you know, doing real things and living life again. And I think that that's a big support we can offer people too, is like helping them shift their beliefs, their thoughts around injury through orienting them towards 
the value of occupation in their lives and and helping them live more of their lives, basically. In our past two podcasts, we've talked a lot about self-management and participatory medicine. And that just feels really applicable here where we're more helping patients establish a process of goal setting, taking a graded approach, having little wins and um and then doing that again and again with different things that they've been struggling with in life due to the concussion. And it's so much more than what's just going on in the clinic. You're really trying to help them uh, take this self-efficacy and this confidence that they can change and grow into their day-to-day lives. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. I think that's so important. Is And it's it's really it's beautiful when you get to that point with somebody and not everyone's ready for that, that kind of transition or maybe that orientation in terms of how they get better. But when they are, it's such a meaningful and exciting thing for us as therapists. For me, that's really the, the heart of, you know, what we do. And as you were talking to, I was just thinking about maybe something in particular for these patients is that there is just a lot of education or some maybe some extra education that these patients might need. I can imagine if you Google PCS or concussion, you might likely be like, I'm stuck like this forever. Um, And you might, if you've been feeling this way for six months, you feel that way too. That reaffirms how you're feeling. And so this education on what we know about concussion and what we don't know, I could see that being helpful. I kind of want to, if you're up for it, Devin, I'd love to role play what you would do with a patient the first time you're seeing them. Um, if they have PCS as their diagnosis um, and just kind of how you would navigate the beginning of those conversations, would you be up for that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I'll be the patient and let's say I have, my diagnosis is PCS. I've been having symptoms for a year and my main symptom is dizziness. Okay. Okay, and you walk into the therapy room. Do you have rooms that you walk into there? We do, yes. Okay, (laughs) you walk in to see me. (laughs) Okay, well... I probably won't script the whole thing out, but what I would say is, you know, the the most important thing right off the bat is really to just to listen um, and try to put aside. Can you show us how you would start that? How would you start that? I just want to hear. Sure. Well, I I probably would always first start with a, with a welcome and welcome you to this space or wherever you're working, you know, thank somebody for their time and, and, and coming in. Um, and then really get a good sense of why they're coming in. So I, I might just ask that question, you know, so what brings you in? Um, keep it really open-ended. Now, if you have some background information, that kind of thing, you can always preface it with that, you know, um, with, yeah. so they, they feel that uh, there's a little bit of, of background support or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, yeah. I think opening with just a very open-ended question about you know, why are you coming in and, um, what is it you hope to to get out of today's uh, visit? Is a good place to start. So what what if as the patient I'm like, well, my doctor told me to come in. I've seen lots of different professionals over the past year. I'm kind of starting to lose track. Um, 
nothing's made a difference. Um, so this was really just another box for me to check off. Great example, because that's such a common experience. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, first, I think I would try and get a good sense of someone's story. So you know, using questions, you know, or statements like, you know, it sounds like uh, you know, you've, you've been through a lot, but I really want to hear how you're doing today and, and learn a bit more about your story. Um, so why don't you tell me how this how this started for you? So it all started with, I was driving in my car and the car behind me hit me and I had this bad whiplash. And within a couple of days, I started to feel dizzy um, all the time, but particularly when there's motion around me, either I'm in motion in a car or if I'm watching something with a lot of motion. So I haven't been able to drive for the past year. That's been really difficult for me. Um, and then before this, I used to be a runner and I haven't been able, even just walking around my block will set off my dizziness. Uh, so I've really been struggling. I've just kind of been stuck and no one's giving me any answers. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of answers that you, that have been provided and the kinds of help that you have sought so far? Um, yeah, they, I guess, ruled some stuff out. We did a MRI and that was negative. Um, I also saw one of those ear doctors and they did some stuff and that was negative. And I saw a cardiologist and that was negative. Um, and I feel like people, um, do these tests and they think, well, this person isn't my problem and they pass me off to the next person. Yeah. That can be a very, very challenging situation. And I've worked with a lot of our people who've been through similar things and, and are very frustrated by that. And what's your understanding of what's going on for you? Um, I definitely think the whiplash caused these concussion symptoms. It definitely caused my dizziness. Like I didn't have that ever before. And then I had it afterwards. So it caused that. And then I just haven't been right since then. And what are the kinds of things that you really want to be doing in your life that this dizziness is preventing you from doing? Um, feeling normal driving, that's been a huge disruption to not be able to drive before this exercise was my main stress reliever. And so it's been really hard to be in this really stressful year and to be, have my main source of stress relief taken away from me. No kidding. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like dizziness is one of your primary concerns and i'd love to talk to you more about that and dig into that but first maybe let's talk a little bit about you and who you are and the kinds of things that you enjoy and yeah i might start there to learn a bit more about you or whoever the person is in front of you 
and then move on to maybe more of a, a pointed interview, I guess, around dizziness and those particular, the particularities around dizziness, you know, what, what kind of dizziness is going on and when it comes on and what kind of things provoke it and all those kinds of things. Um, but really trying to get a better sense of who you are as a person and what's missing from your life or what that symptom is preventing you from doing. I definitely heard you like normalizing what I was going through just for me as a patient, like hearing that you've seen other patients like me, I think would be really helpful or that you, even if you hadn't seen patients like me to understand that this um, is like this kind of set pattern after a concussion that isn't totally out of the blue that, yeah, this would be like a pattern of, of symptoms after that. Yeah. I think, I think the initial kind of interaction with anybody is about listening, understanding, really getting a good sense of the story and the experiences and then, and then moving to, yeah, try and normalize in a respectful way and make someone feel less alone or less crazy or whatever they're experiencing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then take really the time to, 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 to hear it through some kind of hope because that's so um, rare through you know, provide some options and ideas, maybe first getting a good sense of what they've tried before, because, you know, the example you're bringing up is you, you feel like maybe you've tried everything. You know, what can you, what can you as a lowly OT offer me now after I've tried all these things and seen the ENT and the vestibular therapist. And um, so really just getting a good sense of what you've tried and done because nothing can turn off someone faster than being redundant. <laughs> yeah. And if you've been having that for a year, not only have you tried stuff with specialists, yeah. you've probably been trying stuff at home too. Like you've probably Googled stuff and tried a lot of different stuff. I'm curious here in the U.S., we really like to have standardized assessments by we really like to. I mean, we feel like our insurance really, really wants us to do that. <laughs> right. And um but assessments are a good thing to do. I was wondering if you have go-to assessments that you use with this population and what you find helpful or not helpful in that part of the evaluation. Sure. Yeah. Good questions. Well, for things like dizziness, you're probably going to be wanting to run somebody through some vestibular screening, maybe use some questionnaire measures um, around dizziness. Um, checking um, things like the motion sensitivity quotient is a good kind of example of a general screening that might be applicable for us. And then really it depends on each particular core issue. So there isn't sort of one evaluation that's going to match up and cover all the bases. So I think it, it's really a matter of figuring out what the components component issues are and then figuring out the best way to assess those. So things like, um, you know, headache, there's a, a whole host of different headache questionnaires and um, impact measures that you can use. Um, same thing for fatigue and body pain and, um, and neck pain and that sort of thing. Usually I would start with some kind of general questionnaire. And then 
thinking about the kind of objective assessments, I really think the best thing we can offer is some kind of you know, occupation-focused assessment around you know, daily impact of these symptoms, taking a look at routines and you know things like occupational questionnaire, goal-setting measures and getting a sense of someone's functional performance through something like the COPM. And then really, again, trying to pick and choose the best assessments for each component. So if you mentioned that uh, you hadn't been back to, to running, for example. And so doing some kind of test around exertion and movement would be really critical. Even something as basic as the Buffalo concussion treadmill test might be a good starting point there. So I think for, for pretty much every symptom or issue, there's some kind of component assessment that you can, you can offer. But I think it's really important to advocate for using some kind of occupational measure, especially in the healthcare insurance context where um, we often assume what insurers want, but don't know exactly what they want. And it's a good opportunity to really um, inform them about what your value is as an OT um, through really focusing in on yeah, occupation, routines, sort of activity engagement, and those sort of things. And there isn't really a lot of good standardized structured assessments for, for those things, but just your own clinical judgment and observation um, goes a long way there, I think. And you actually wrote a example, a documentation example for the OT Potential Club that was on concussion. Right. Um, I think I might reshare that with this episode as like uh, provide a little bit of a forum for people uh, to talk about the documentation side or assessment side. Uh, if that's, is that okay with you if I do that? That's great. Yeah. And I'm happy to field any other questions too, if people are interested in terms of what measures that maybe we use, just because there are so many, there's, there's, it's hard to blur them all out in, <laughs> in a short amount of time. And also they each have, they each have a time and place, right? I think uh, the context that you're in really matters a lot. You know, for example, like here, I work in a, in a private setting where we're not really um, just beholden to things like questionnaires and um, sort of traditional measures. And so I don't actually use a lot of standardized measures in my own practice and tend to be a bit more pragmatic about it. But that's a privilege in this context. And I think that uh, mm -hmm. there are lots of different options um, for for assessments uh, that we'd be happy to share. Yeah. Yeah, I know we could spend a whole episode just on that component alone, um, but we're headed into our final just two minutes of our time. I was wondering if just real quick, you could give us what your biggest takeaway was from this research and how reading it could impact your practice. Sure, yeah, well, I think it's a it's a tricky paper. I, I think what it brought up for me was the importance of always being respectfully skeptical of any kind of literature that we're reading, especially when it's concerning these loosely defined concepts and trying to make sense of them and perform you know statistical analysis and that sort of thing. It's sort of that old idea of garbage in garbage out. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'd be pretty cautious about drawing conclusions from this kind of study just because of the methodological problems. But I think one thing that it made me think about is that really we should be working on better defining these issues um, and being a bit more specific with how we think about 
persisting problems and not lumping them together into this idea of a syndrome, but instead really unpacking it and matching it with interventions that can actually help people. So I do really believe that there's potential for people to get better. And by better, I mean, do more in their lives, you know, at any time point after an injury. And I think that it's people often get written off after years. And, uh, I think that this study actually sort of contributes to that feeling that we should just write people off, which I think is really a myth and that we can do better for these people. So I think in summary, really, it, it just demonstrates that there's a lot of missed opportunity to help and that OTs actually are in a good position to help because there's a lot of people out there who need support, who have tried lots of different things and don't feel like they're making progress towards their goals. And maybe trying on OT is the right approach. Well, Devin, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on today. And would you come back again sometime to talk about concussion in the future? I would love to. This has been fabulous. Thank you so much. Okay, I wanted to thank you for joining our conversation today. I hope that you learned as much about post-concussion syndrome as I did. And hopefully you felt that our episode met those two learning objectives that I mentioned at the beginning, that you can now define post-concussion syndrome and identify important occupational therapy considerations for working with these patients. If you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. The OT Potential Club is our OT evidence-based practice platform. We have already reviewed almost 100 articles for you. So you can search our evidence base on all kinds of different topics and diagnoses. But to earn a CEU certificate for this course, you are going to want to search for post-concussion syndrome or click on the button that says CEU courses. From there, you will be prompted to take a five question test. And if you earn 75% or higher, you will have a certificate sent to your email. If you have any questions about the process or feedback on this course, Please leave us a review on your podcast platform if that feels right, or if you have an immediate need, you can chat with us on our website, which again is otpotential.com. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk with you next month.